0: Hello and good morning. Welcome to the latest Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And it's a special episode for me. First of all, I'm here in Bavaria seeing my kids, Matilda and Samuel. Say hi, guys. Hello there. And best of all, they get to see what I actually do for a living. And we're here a year on from the start of the Ukraine war to look at the hidden realities of what's going on there, the sea monsters beneath the surface, that are beyond the moronic 24-hour news cycle of the mainstream media, which tells you in a baseball fashion who's winning and who's losing. We're going to look at the dynamics that are actually determining the war that don't get so much ink but matter ever so much more. And to start with, we're going to talk about a very strange confluence of things that's happened a year on. We can see that the Russian army has done far less well than anybody thought it would but the Russian economy has done far better than anyone thought it would. On the other hand, the Ukrainian army has done far better than anyone thought it would, while its economy has done far less well than even its detractors thought that it would. It's been the exact opposite of what everybody thought a year ago. Everybody thought a year ago that the Russians would simply glibly march into Kiev, and in fact... Putin ordered the troops to pack military dress uniforms with them as they started out because he wanted them ready for the victory parade that was due to follow in about a week's time. Suffice it to say they haven't had to use those uniforms. As we've talked about before, the first invasion attempt failed for a number of reasons. For one thing, it was way too complicated. The Russian army has always been very good at massing heavy groups of men, at artillery and armor, less good about strategy, and doing a complicated three-pronged attack failed to work because each of the prongs broke down and became mini wars of their own. And so the whole thing bogged down into confusion very quickly. Secondly, Putin didn't expect the Ukrainians to fight as a nation. And ironically, more than anyone else, he's made Ukraine a nation. The nationhood has been determined by fighting against the Russians. And that's the great irony of the war. They fought better and with far greater morale than anybody thought. Rather than kicking in the rotten door, as Putin said he would do, instead the Ukrainians have bravely resisted. And so this confusion, uh, the surprising resistance of the Ukrainians, and then the support of the Westerners that he didn't count on them giving the wherewithal to Ukraine. The United States has given, as of this morning, about $118 billion, yes, billion dollars in aid of every kind, humanitarian aid, military aid. And fin- financial aid to the Ukrainians, none of this was planned for, and all of this explains why Russia has done far less well rather than taking Kiev in seven days' time and the whole of ukraine and let's remember Ukraine is bigger than Paris than France. Um, this is a gigantic country, and the idea that you can take it in three weeks' time was always ridiculously irrational, particularly the Western part of the country, which is Western in outlook. It used to be part of the Habsburg Empire in the 19th century. This was always a pipe dream. But for these other reasons, they haven't even managed their minimalist goals. And on the other hand, as I've said, the Ukrainians have fought far better and with Western weaponry have stoutly led the war to devolve into the stalemate. That we presently see, that's true. That's all been celebrated. That all needs talking about. But more importantly, or equally importantly, at least, is the economics, which is talked about far less. The Western world was confident that when it put sanctions onto Russia, it was within a relatively short period of time grind the Russian economy down. And that's mainly because Russia, for all the talk, is a corrupt gas station with nuclear weapons. This is a one-crop economy. As former President Medvedev made clear, they've tried to divest. But in the end, I can tell you how powerful Russia is on any given day if I know the spot price of oil and natural gas. That's what these people do. They make energy. And as that's the key, if you stop the energy flows, you stop the Russian economy. So far, so good. Where did Russia send its gas? Primarily to Europe, which was utterly dependent on Russia, but economically, Russia was utterly dependent on them. What's changed is very quickly the Europeans have fairly successfully divested themselves of Russian um, oil and natural gas oil in, in totality, natural gas less so, but wean themselves off of it quite successfully. Instead, they're buying their gas from Norway, from, from Holland, from the United States through liquefied natural gas and through Qatar. And they've done that very successfully, but the Russian economy hasn't fallen apart either. The Russian economy instead has pivoted and they are now selling their gas to other sources at cut rates to the Chinese and the Indians. And that's what the Westerners got wrong about sanctions. They thought that in doing this and putting sanctions in place, the rest of the world would slavishly follow them. And those days are over. The Cold War, such as it is, doesn't work that way anymore. Instead, the rest of the world said, oh, good, cut rate oil and natural gas. Energy-starved India and energy-starved China just got a great rate on oil and natural gas. They haven't done what the West has wanted them to do. Instead, they've done what their own national interests imply. Their people need energy in the same way Europeans do, and they now have a chance to buy gas at much lower rates, and that's what's happened. And so by using rupees and yuan, rupees are the currency in India, yuan are the currency in China. By doing this, they've gotten around formal Western sanctions, so not to run afoul of Western law, But at the same time, they've got these cut rates. And the fascinating thing is that the global south, the developing world, as used to be called in the bad old days, the third world, has not followed the United States and the West. While the West has been unified on Ukraine, at least on the surface, the rest of the world has not been and in fact has gone on and bought this oil and natural gas. So the Russian economy hasn't fallen off the table. It's gone down by only two or three percent of GDP Uh, in the last year. And the figures at the time were that it was likely to lose 20 or 30 percent of GDP. That would have been a Great Depression. The United States, at the worst in the early 1930s, had its GDP shrink by about 33 percent. That's Great Depression territory. We thought we could inflict a Great Depression on Russia through sanctions, and that hasn't happened for the simple reason the rest of the world beyond the West hasn't gone along. And in fact, if you look at the 10 most populous countries in the world, the 10 countries in the world with the most people, nine of the ten, nine of the 10 are neutral in the Ukraine war. And that's what nobody's following going forward. Yes, by the way, the only exception to that is the United States, which is on that list and they're pro-Ukrainian, but every other country on that list is not. Who do I mean specifically? So you get an idea in your head of who I'm talking about, Indonesia and Turkey And Mexico and Brazil and Argentina and China and India, Mexico, as I said, places like this are neutral because they don't want to be in the pocket of the Russians. They're not happy with what the Russians did, but they sure don't want to be in the pocket of the West and the United States either. And this going forward is the challenge. Whoever has the most allies, the United States or China, is going to end up the dominant power in the world. At the great power level, the Western level, the United States is far ahead. The United States has the UK and the Anglosphere, has the EU on side, has India on side within the region, has Japan on side. China only has Russia on side. But at that next level down, the emerging powers of the world that are doing better from a very low base, these people are neutral. We have to go back to the 1950s to Jack Kennedy, really, who used his father's great wealth to travel the world to see what was known then as the developing world, the third world. And Kennedy said, correctly, whoever dominates the rising part of the world is going to dominate the world in the next century. I think Kennedy was right then, and I think Kennedy is right now. But this explains why the Russian economy has done ever so much better than everyone thought it did. It's only gone down two or three percentage points of GDP in a year. and If anything, uh, the IMF says it's likely to grow at a low rate next year, so it's not about to collapse. On the other hand, the Ukrainian economy, unlike the Ukrainian military, is predictably an utter mess. Now, the fighting is in their country, and countries at war rarely do well in GDP terms because they're being destroyed. But the Ukrainian economy has gone down at 20 or 30 percent, which is precisely what you'd have expected to happen. And this means that they are utterly dependent on the United States to make the lights turn on in the morning. Utterly dependent. The $120 billion I've talked about are paying for the heating, are paying for the pensions, are paying for the salaries, are paying for the weaponry, are paying for the government, are paying for the roads being rebuilt, are paying for the humanitarian intervention, meaning they are utterly dependent for all their Churchillian talk on the United States continuing to write blank check after blank check after blank check. So one of the ways, the first hidden reality of Ukraine, is that yes, the Ukrainian military has done better than anybody thought. The mainstream media is right about that. Yes, the the Russian military has proven to be an utter joke. Anybody who says they'd go on and take over NATO is crazy. They can't even take Kharkiv, which is 15 miles away from their border. I'm not worried about them marching into Berlin anytime soon. So this argument I hear is hysterical and wrong all the time. It's a neoconservative argument on the far right. That's crazy. Um, They can't even take over their next door neighbor that's a weakling. So that's all true but the flip side is the Russian economy run by a very adroit very well managed central bank and with the global south still buying their oil and their and their gas is doing remarkably well at losing only 2%. We thought they'd lose 20, 10 times better than we thought. The Ukrainian economy, on the other hand, because the fighting is there, is a basket case. This is the first hidden reality of Ukraine. The second hidden reality of Ukraine is that for all this talk about Western unity, Watch this begin to fray. The two most important economic powers in the West are the Germans in Europe, who are the economic motor of Europe, and on the other hand, the United States, who again are giving more aid, and, and this infuriates me. The United States, for all this talk about Europe is great, and Europe can manage its own problems, and Europe is our equal, meeting after meeting after meeting, I listen to this nonsense. So why I don't go to these meetings anymore, which are cheerleading by a bunch of people I wouldn't hire to be my interns Samuel's laughing correctly. Fair enough. Uh, But that's why this is wish fulfillment. This is what they'd like to have happen. The reality is the math. The math is the math. The math is the United States has contributed more money to Ukraine than the rest of the world put together. Simple fact. Simple fact. And the idea that Europeans are pulling their weight is laughable. Eisenhower said when NATO was set up. Well, we'll only have to have troops in Europe for 10 years, then they'll rebuild their economies, they'll have their own troops, and then we can go home, and guess we, we'll still give them a nuclear guarantee, and we'll still be their ally if they need it, we'll come and help them, but we don't need to have troops in. During the NATO debates in 1949, this is what the United States public was told. Europe's a mess. It's rubble. We have to help them. We don't want them to be communists in Italy and Germany and France. So we'll stay for 10 years. They'll then rebuild their economies. And then we can go home and we'll only come and help them if they need us if the Russians attack. That was the sale. 80 years later, 80 years later, we're still here. And the Europeans have rebuilt their economy. It's now their GDP is roughly the size of the United States if you add them all together. And we're still here while the French hate me from the safety of a cafe, while I pay for their defense and they get to retire at the age of 14. This is not sustainable. The United States has massive problems that need dealing with with its own money. Fentanyl has killed over 100,000 people in the last year. The opioid crisis you don't hear a word about has killed them. And why? They live in the middle of America, not where the mainstream media of Europe or the United States are. Nobody knows these people. They're Trump voters. Nobody cares what happens to them. I do. A 100,000 of them have died. And I would like to put some money into treating these people who have this terrible problem. Our schools are a mess. Our roads are a mess. Our border is a mess. Crime is a mess. Everyone knows this in the United States, whatever political view you have. I want the money to help the people of the United States, not the people of Ukraine, one of the most corrupt countries in the world. And we're not even auditing it. Biden is fighting us auditing what goes on in Ukraine, meaning I'm just giving them the money and saying, good luck, I'm sure you'll spend it well. And the polling numbers show this is no longer acceptable to Americans for exactly the reasons I've laid out. I've even left out the geostrategic argument that China is the major threat moving forward. China is the only country in the world that is a peer superpower competitor to the United States. It's the only country in the world that can remake the world in its own image in the next 20 or 30 years. There are no other threats to the United States globally in the world. So we're worried about a third order priority, a declining Russia, fighting in its next-door neighbor, and we're spending $100 billion on this, the Chinese must fall over themselves laughing every morning while we ignore the Indo-Pacific, the region of the world growing at the fastest rate with the most political risk. We're utterly ignoring the thing that matters to worry about the thing that doesn't. For all these reasons, Republicans are restive about giving more aid to the Ukrainians. Governor DeSantis rightly has said, no more blank checks for Ukraine. It's exactly right. Nobody's talking about moving the money to zero, but having it be accounted for, having it be for specific things and having it be less, every Republican is in favor of. And if you look at the polling now, for the first time in January, Washington Post polls show that a minority of people, it's below 50 percent, it's gone down from about 75 to 49, 48 percent, are now forgiving Ukraine, no more wherewithal. Fatigue is setting in. We don't see the benefit of doing this forever when we have our own problems. And if the Republicans take the White House, the Ukrainians are in for one heck of a shock because you don't read this story in the mainstream media. But that doesn't mean I'm not right. The other issue is Germany. There is a very interesting poll in the um, the European Council on Foreign Relations did a very good poll. I, I hate their politics. I love their polling. They do very good work. And although they think Europe, I mean, Mark Leonard was wrong. Europe was going to be the next superpower. Then China was going to be the next superpower. Basically, Mark is rooting for anyone who isn't the United States. But let me just say, beyond his wish fulfillment, the polls are fantastic. And they do spend a lot of money and do in-depth polling of individual European countries, as well as the states and around the world. Fantastic polling. And one of the things that, that Mark's people have gotten right It is to look through the polling at individual countries. Of all the countries in Europe, the one with the most fatigue, like the United States, for different reasons, is Germany. And Germany and poll after poll after poll, if you ask them the question and you make it extreme, there are two possibilities. You can, if you say to a European, you can fight for justice or you can have peace. They aren't the same. Justice means you keep fighting, you keep giving the Ukrainians weapons, you give them weapons as long as it takes for them to reclaim every single kilometer of Ukrainian territory, and then you're going to have a recession because you will have energy problems. You have to give them all this money. You have all these problems of your own you're not spending any money on. And you're willing to do that. And the other extreme is that you want peace this morning. Wherever the boundary is this morning, like in Korea, that's where the boundary is going to be. And the war stops. And then you can go back to running your own economy and spending the money on your own. If those are the two extremes, most people in Europe are deeply divided about what to do about this. The, the, The numbers are 60, 40, 40, 60, somewhere in there. In Germany, In Germany, a vast majority of people want peace this morning. They don't want the war. The war is too close. They have huge problems. The German economic model is broken down. The German model for 70 years was cheap Russian gas to make high-end German products to sell to China. That's the model. Well, both parts of that are broken, the input and the output. The input of cheap Russian gas doesn't work anymore, and the output to China is highly problematic. So the Germans have to figure out a new economic model so they can live the way they are now. that That's what they want to be focused on, and I under, they want to eat and have their children do well and all that. They don't want to be writing check after check after check to Mr. Zelensky. Also, they're worried that this war is much closer to them than the United States. It's always the United States is a castle with two moats, the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans, protecting it. Germany's fairly close, uncomfortably close to Ukraine. So this worries them in a big way. And so these numbers are quite consistent that of all the major European powers, the German public is starting to say, like the American Republicans, enough and this is a story you haven't heard about. You've heard about Western unity. But beneath the unity, the sea monster is fatigue is setting in. How long are these checks going to be written? I would argue already the clock is beginning to run out. And that's the second hidden reality of Ukraine. And then the third hidden reality of Ukraine, and this one really worries me from my Iraq days uh, when my all my antenna go up, Um We don't agree on what success looks like. I remember saying this in the Iraq war when I was around the crazies of the Bush administration and their cheerleaders in in the press who are still now cheerleading for Ukraine. Yes, the very same people who said the Iraq war would go great haven't killed themselves or ended up in prison. They're now having very good jobs and telling everyone... Things are going to go great in Ukraine. Why don't we judge them in a Republican Jeffersonian manner by how stupid they were before? I mean you, David Frum. I mean you, Ann Applebaum. I'm talking about specific people. Kagan, Crowdhammer, Crystal. All you people, other than Crowdhammer, who's no longer with us. All you people have an awful lot to answer for, Max Boot, who got us into the Iraq war, have no shame about the quarter million people who died in the catastrophe it caused the United States. And in return, are now saying, trust me again? Shame on me if I do. Shame on me if I do. But I have to say this because no one else is. This is outrageous. And you should be held accountable when you're right and when you're wrong. That's a Jeffersonian view that you don't have, that I do have. So the people are saying, this is great. What does victory look like? And no one in Iraq would say the same thing. I'd ask 10 people what victory looked like. I'd get 10 answers. I need one answer. And let me explain how this works. In World War II, the answer is we utterly destroy Nazism and we utterly destroy Imperial Japan. Mussolini didn't count. That's that's victory. That's what it looks like. We retake Europe. ...from the Nazis, and we, we take in the Indo-Pacific, or as the Imperial Japanese called it, the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. We retake that from the Japanese, we subjugate them, we throw out these evil regimes, and we put in place democratic regimes. That is a very specific goal. We can argue about it, but we know what I mean. I don't know what anyone means in Ukraine. What does victory look like? We go back to the 2014 boundaries, so the Donbass is half Russian half Ukrainian, Crimea stays Russian, and then the rest of the country exists as a rump state that's rebuilt. That's probably the most likely outcome that I could live with that. Zelensky couldn't. Zelensky says, I want every kilometer of territory returned from the pre-19, 2014 boundaries, meaning Crimea, which means that Russia could use tactical nuclear weapons to keep Crimea. Are you kidding me? I'm not for that. Are you kidding me? Tactical nuclear weapons are on the line. You're out of your mind if you think I'm for that. So we don't agree. We agree the Russians are bad. We agree that Ukraine shouldn't lose any more territory. We agree Ukraine shouldn't be eviscerated from the map. Sure. But if we win, what does victory look like? You're going to get 12 different answers. The German answer and the Republican answer would be more like my first answer. The Ukrainian answer, the neoconservative answer, the Wilsonian answer would be more like Zelensky's answer. But they're not the same. We don't agree about what the end state of the war looks like. And we think that someday down the line we're going to agree. No, we're going to run into gigantic problems because we don't agree on what victory is and if you don't agree on what you're doing you can't do it this is Aristotle this is basic thinking this is Greek thinking so the hidden realities of Ukraine beneath the surface are clear on the one hand the Ukrainian army has overperformed its economy has done terribly because of the reality of the fighting there the Russian army's done underperformed but its economy has overperformed But Russia's done very well. For the second hidden reality, the global south, the emerging markets are not with the west over the war in any way. The third point is there's war fatigue setting in in the two key economic motors driving the west, Germany and the United States. And lastly, we have no idea what victory is. For all these reasons, I am far gloomier about the long-term prospects of, for the Ukrainians than would be the cheerleading mainstream press. This isn't because I have a dog in this fight. Obviously, I would prefer the Ukrainians to win or at least hold off the Russians to them winning. As I've said many times, Matilda, I don't want Mr. Putin dating you. The fact that I have to say, she's laughing and rolling her eyes at me. The fact that the fact that I have to say this is how crazy the debates become. Of course he's evil. Of course. He shouldn't invade the country. And as everyone who follows this knows, I was entirely for forgiving the Ukrainians wherewithal to defend themselves. I'm not forgiving them wherewithal to meet their strategic needs. Well, we don't deal with fentanyl. We don't deal with teachers crisis. We don't deal with roads crises. We don't deal with all the problems with crime in the United States. We don't deal with the opioid situation. We don't deal with China. And instead, I'm worried about the 16th order priority, and I spend $120 billion on that. That is irresponsible. This is going to get darker before it gets better, because these hidden realities, like sea monsters in Loch Ness, don't go away. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed it. Fun to do this in front of the kids. Uh, Around the world in 20 minutes and for so many of you who have given and joined and and joined our our community I'm very very grateful for those of you who haven't please do subscribe Uh, And for those of you who have subscribed Please do give the $70 a year that we're asking for $7 a month or $70 a year For the price of the beloved espresso that I normally make in Italy as the kids are laughing They can tell you today. I had three cappuccinos and Matilda had the espresso, but for the price of just one of those drinks You're going to get this very different cutting edge view that's on the money about how the world really works. Thank you ever so much. Next week, I am back in Milan before we hit the road for Singapore and Sydney, where I will do the. I I hear from Samuel, Sydney's very dangerous with snakes and things. So and spiders. Thank you, Samuel. When I'm not fighting off the spiders, they're sharks, uh, insects, lots of stuff. While I'm not fighting off the animals trying to kill me in Sydney, I'll be sure that we do yet another one of these. But I wanted to get this out to our community. Have a wonderful weekend and see you very soon.